This episode is brought to you by Borderless. Paying and managing remote workers can be a difficult task for companies. With the shift to remote work, companies are hiring talent from all over the world. But once they bring on that engineer from Turkey or Mexico, they quickly realize the challenges of paying them on on an ongoing basis and managing them effectively. There are various issues that companies have to tackle, such as foreign exchange fees, delays in cross-border payments, managing invoices, and trying to stay compliant with local laws. These complications can cause headaches and wasted time for companies as they have to navigate a complex and ever-changing landscape of regulations and compliance. The process of paying and managing remote workers can be time-consuming, costly, and difficult to keep up with. It can also be a major distraction from the company's core business operations. That's where Borderless comes in. Their extensive experience in worker payments and contractor management has simplified this process for companies. They take away all the complexity of managing international contractors, allowing companies to put their contractor or employee on their platform and handle everything else. They take care of paying global workers and drafting local compliant contracts so companies can focus on what they do best. They also include the communication, task management, and compliance. And the best part? Borderless offers real-time payment to contractors in over 150 countries across the world, allowing contractors to access their funds quickly and easily. Their SaaS business model offers competitive pricing with a monthly fee of $39 per contractor or $399 per employee. Don't let managing remote workers hold you back any longer. Let Look Borderless be your global workforce management solution at HireBorderless.com. That's HireBorderless.com. Hello and welcome everyone. I am Evan McCann and this is The Hard Part. This show is a deep dive into the strategies, founding stories, and behind-the-scenes insights from Canada's top founders, investors, and leaders. My guest today is Pablo Srugo. Pablo is a partner at Mistral. Mistral is a seed stage venture capital firm and typically is the first institutional investor in their portfolio companies. In this episode, we discuss Pablo's time as a founder, his thoughts on VCs being money managers, not company builders, and we break down one of Mistral's latest investments. Please enjoy my conversation with Pablo Srugo. Pablo, I'd like to start with your time at Carleton, and I saw that you studied economics there. Why did you choose economics? Really through serendipity more than anything else. I, I went into it thinking I wanted to be a lawyer, and I was interested in philosophy at the time, reading a lot of philosophy books, decided to get into philosophy. had an uncle of mine that told me that he thought I would like economics, and because philosophy is really like just a bunch of electives, I took one, one that was in economics, and after taking it, I really did like it quite a bit and being totally honest because my goal back then was to get into law school i was focused almost exclusively on grades and it was easier to be consistent in, in something that was 
quantitative like economics than in philosophy. So by year two, I switched my major over to to that and, and really didn't look back. And you're studying at Carleton and you found my tutor. Are, are you doing that? Did you start that idea like during university, after you graduated? What was the timing there? So what happened there, venture? the bigger story is by midway through undergrad, my goal of becoming a lawyer faded as I realized it just wasn't going to be a good fit. And, and reality wasn't like being Harvey Spencer in suits. It was it was a lot more boring than that. And so I decided that wasn't going to be for me. Started working on some startup ideas with a friend of mine who had come to a similar conclusion. And in the meantime, I had been a TA for many different uh, classes throughout my undergrad. And then in fourth year, you know, a week before classes started, they told me that there was no more funding for undergraduate TAs. Only graduate TAs would get funding. And, you know, I needed that for, for rent. So I decided to do the closest thing, which was tutoring. So I started tutoring and you know, as my friend and I are kind of working on startups, but nothing's really clicking, nothing's really worth pursuing. Uh, the tutoring business is kind of growing. And by the end of fourth year, I, I just looked at Lee, who's my co-founder, and said, look, why don't we just expand on this thing that's right in front of us? Like, let's just expand on this tutoring thing. Hire tutors, do it across, you know, do university tutoring, starting across Carleton and Ottawa U in Ottawa. And, you know, make it a little bit more tech-enabled and whatnot and just see where it goes. And so that's what, that's what led to my tutor getting started right after we graduated. And you said, you know, like during university, you wanted to start on a startup idea. Where did that kind of entrepreneurial drive come from? Like, I don't think that's a classic thing that people in university like want to start like a business or a startup. Um, had you done things when you were really young or family members or just been exposed? Honestly, to I think it was a desire to being can being control right like i that's what put me off partially that's what put, put me off the lawyer track which was like you really have to pay your dues you have to do a lot of time where you're just doing what somebody else tells you to do consistently and i wanted to put myself in a position where that wasn't the case and you know for whether it's a, a good reason or, or not a good reason but that really is i think what drove me and, and lead to the idea of, okay, well, maybe we should start a business. And in that way, at least we get to just act on our own thoughts, our own ideas. And the only feedback we get is, is kind of pure feedback from the market, right? Versus somebody's uh, subjective opinion. With my tutor, you went through an acquisition there. So what was kind of like your biggest learning if you were to maybe sum it up in a few different points of my tutor, your first venture getting acquired, which is awesome. What was I think that the first process? thing is just like startups, like businesses in general, business is hard. It just is. Right? Going from zero to one on anything uh, isn't easy. Now, my tutor specifically was easier than a tech startup because in when you start a normal business, you're going after existing demand, right? Like if I open a coffee shop, I know people like coffee. And if I'm in a good location, people are going to come in through the door. Similar with my tutor, like we put up ads across flyers really on campus is was one of our main methods of advertising. And we made a sale on our first day, not because we're geniuses, just because it's a service that's known to uh, be in demand. Obviously, the challenge becomes really kind of separating yourself from others, differentiation, um, you know, marketing in general and just growth, right? Like that's where, so I think that's what we learned is just, you know, starting a business, you can have all these dreams, aspirations, but day to day is grind. And uh, it takes a lot of, a lot of uh, grit 
to to make it happen, make it come true. And to be clear, like that acquisition was very small. It was just a really good way for us to have like a little bit of runway. And we were like 21. So we, we lived on nothing. Like we were eating ramen every day and, you know, we're roommates. Like it was really cheap runway, but it gave us runway nonetheless. And it gave us time to focus on something bigger. And so that that was the the exciting part, I would argue, about that acquisition. And focusing on something bigger, is that gym track? How did you come up with that idea? What so was, here's what the was situation. that situation? And I think like, this is probably like anti-advice, right? Like what you shouldn't do. But what we did was we we started my tutor. There was like a month or two of like a lot of work, just setting everything up, the website, this and that, the thinking, vision, whatever. The business, once it was operational, was really easy to run, right? You have your tutors that you've trained and hired and you get a call and you connect them to the right tutor and the tutor, you know, effectively takes it from there. So you, we were running this business on like five, 10 hours a week, but we both wanted to, uh, we just had bigger ambitions. Like we just wanted to create something bigger. And so we're constantly coming up with ideas and testing out different ideas and thinking about different things. Uh, funny enough, one of those ideas was a delivery system. And this was maybe six months after Skip the Dishes had started. And uh, and like Lee went down and spoke with like 10 restaurants. And I think half of them just like didn't even want to talk to him. The other half were like, okay about the idea. So we just didn't do it. And that was a huge mistake. But you know that like, I'm sure there's a million people that have stories just like that one. The, the point being that we came up with a bunch of different things. And one of them was this kernel that later on became Gym Track. And as we explored it, I think we both got more and more emotionally invested into it. And, and we started bootstrapping towards something that was, that was more real, started getting more people working on it. Uh, and, and honestly, really quickly, we, we managed to raise some funding, which led to more funding and just put us in a position where it was like, okay, I guess we're, we're really doing this. And, and we went after this kind of like 2014 sort of thing. And I think this will tie nicely into where you're at now, but what was some major differences between starting a business that was a bit more bootstrap, living off ramen, and one that you had some investors well, and backers? Well, it was night and day, right? Because my tutor's problem was easy to get some demand, hard to scale beyond something, right? And and whereas Gym Track was all or nothing, you know, funny enough, thinking through Gym Track, we were like, you know, people tell you like, what do you think is your exit strategy and so on. And I remember like having this thought where it was like, well, if we can make this thing actually work and like actually people can track their workouts with full accuracy, we would never sell it. And if we can't, no one will ever buy it. Like it's just that zero to one. And so it was totally different. And really Gym Track became almost an R&D shop. Like at, by, at one point, at peak, we had 35 employees and 30 of them were engineers. The way I, th the way I think about it, it's like magic leap, you know, but a couple orders of magnitude smaller. The same idea is just a lot of money put out in their case, billions in our case, millions at trying to develop next level technology that kind of leapfrogs what exists today. And everybody gets it, right? Everybody's like, yeah, that's true. That would be awesome if it existed. And the challenge isn't, delivering value or finding product market fit. The challenge is creating the thing and getting it to work properly. 
If you had to choose one, what was one thing that you worked on that was maybe didn't actually get built or finalized, but was just really exciting to you during that time? Track? One of the biggest yeah. things that we were after, because workout tracking is cool in principle, but the value of tracking your reps and weight lifted is quite limited. It's not like, this is a, something that, because I've been chatting with a lot of companies in this space, there's always other companies t- targeting it. And at some point, somebody's going to unlock it. But if you compare, the analogy normally is like Strava. It's like, well, if Strava and RunKeeper are doing for running and cycling and people love it, obviously people are going to love it for the gym. And here's the key difference. When you go for a run, there's no more important metric you could get probably than your pace and the distance that you ran. And those two metrics, you can't calculate yourself. You need tech to give you those metrics. When you're in the gym, how many reps you just did isn't actually that valuable. And to the extent that it is, you've counted it. So it's not, the value actually isn't the same. It's probably an order of magnitude less value. And of course, the cost of developing is at least a core, an order of magnitude more because it's not just GPS. It's like crazy sensors and computer vision or whatever. So that's the, that was the challenge. But the thing that we thought could really be valuable is virtual personal training. And so the idea was once you can track and that's your baseline and you know that people are doing, th- th- that the technology is accurately tracking what people are doing in the gym, well, all of a sudden, the 97% of gym members who don't have a personal trainer because it's too expensive, all of a sudden could afford a virtual one, a real human in the loop who can give you workouts and change your workouts based on what's actually happening during, during your time working out. And that could be a much, much bigger play with, I think, a lot more value. And so that was, uh, and that was a big part of our story, to be clear. But of course, we never got there because we never got the technology to work at the level that it needed to, to be widely deployed. And was there a tr- transition point there? Because you ended up in venture capital. I know you did some stuff with Invest Ottawa. So what was the transition there from Jim Track being a founder into VC well, for you? Well, like near the, so at one point we hired a new CEO, this guy, Rob Woodbridge, good friend of mine, started working with him for a couple of years. Through that, I also started helping startups that were part of Invest Ottawa, which is a, a RIC in Ottawa. And they were like really early stage startups. I started working with them. But what happened was in 2018, early 2018, I decided it was time for me to leave Jim Track. I just felt like I could add more value somewhere else and that Rob really had this under control. My being there or leaving wasn't going to make that big of a difference, if any, actually. And so I left. And at that point, I was just exploring different things. Like I was, you know, I've been a founder for six years. I'm like, let's just keep being a founder. Like, let's just figure out what's worth working on. And that's when through one, you know, one thing led to another, I got introduced to, again, serendipity coming into play, got introduced to Bernie and, and later Code, who are the founders of Mistral. And they happen to be looking for someone to join. I was in Ottawa at the time. You have to imagine like there are almost no VC firms in Ottawa. And there was like one role for, for this role and this was it. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, I had a good conversation with them. The fit felt really good. I didn't know if I wanted to be VC or not, but I figured this was the time to give it a, give it a shot, you know, give it a try. It was the right team, the right time. And, uh, and so I jumped on board. This was mid-2018. And, and obviously I'm still here and, and loving it. So glad I, glad I went through that door. 
and you're almost coming up on five years or maybe hitting that now. What 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 have you learned from you joined as, you know, kind of analyst and now you're a partner? How, what have you learned over those five years of, you know, kind of climbing the ranks within the VC firm? How has your role changed? And like what do you have to learn different skills so at I, different I started stages? Off and we're a really small firm, but my title back then was associate, which effectively either way for the first three to six months was just shadowing everybody and learning, you know, the ins and outs of the business, helping with bunch of backend stuff that's related to getting deals done and helping portfolio companies. And then a year in, I was promoted to principal. The big change there was the ability to lead my own deals, which is arguably where VC gets interesting. I think it was clear to me at the beginning, okay, this could be really fun once you have like five or eight investments that you've chosen. So you've decided what's interesting and you've decided which CEOs you want to work with. And now you're working with five or eight of them across many different industries. And you know some do well, some don't do well. You add some value here, you 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 maybe are less in touch with this other one, but like you've got different things happening, and and you've put yourself in those places. That's an exciting place to be, and becoming principal was like the first step towards that, right? Because all of a sudden I was able to start putting myself into that position. Now you know three years later, or so um, I have about five investments, maybe six. That uh, no, five investments were. Uh, that, that I, you know, the lead on and actually adding a sixth one now. So it's starting to get into that, into that place. And, and so that was the transition. And I think becoming a partner, which happened last year, part of it is symbolic. Like it's, you know, telling even within the firm, like them telling me and, and me telling them like, Hey, we're, we're here for, for the long haul sort of thing. I mean, the idea when you, when you make partner, at least the way I think about it is you're not leaving next year, right? Like that's not, and that's where it's different. You know, partnership is different from your, your traditional company where tenure, if you're lucky, is five, like really lucky is five years, even if you have a great track and career in a company like Shopify will tell you, we, we'd love it if you were here five years and then you left somewhere else. No problem. Right? At a partnership or very few people. And actually, we would love it if you were here forever. That's it. Like that would be ideal. Um, and I think for partners, that's that is the give and take, right? It's like, here's more trust, here's more responsibility. And, and what you give back is like, consistency right and and you've chosen that you want to be here for the long haul because i think that builds great great firms over time if you look at like some of the best firms you know key people have been there for a long long time um so part of it is symbolic and then part of it has more to do with like lp management and fundraising and things like that which are the other side of the business uh you know i think it's easy for a vc to forget that like we're not company builders we're money managers <laughs> and at the end of the day you know, that's what we're here to do is to is to raise money from LPs and give them better returns by allocating the capital in in the best places possible and driving as much innovation with every dollar that we can. With Mistral, like what is like you don't have to give like the full history, but what is some background on the firm? Like is this based in Ottawa? And what stage or sector are you investing in? And and also like maybe just you individually, what are you investing in if that's maybe slightly different or, or so piece our mission at Mistral Symbol, it's we want to work with the best founders in Canada to build startups that matter. And in a sense that's cliche, but it's still reality. And that's what we focus on every single day. The way that we do that is we invest in pre-seed and seed stage companies mainly in Canada, 80% Canada, 20% US. 
mainly in enterprise, 80% enterprise, 20% other, be it marketplace or consumer. But we will do that as well and we'll look at it across many, many different verticals. So we are purposefully a generalist firm. And what we bet on more than anything is amazing founders building building companies that we think need to be built versus you know being super deep on a specific vertical or things like that. The history is uh, is interesting. I mean, Canadian VC ecosystem is actually quite nascent, right? Like it's actually, when you look at the brands, the oldest brands have been around for like 15 years, which is so different than the US where you have company, where you have brands that have been there for like 50 years, right? Like always been around for a long time. Don Valentine was a long time ago. Uh, here, like who are some of the oldest firms, maybe Inovia and things like that. Like they're not on fund 15, right? They're on fund like five or six or whatever it is. So we're part of that wave. Like we started in 2012, 2013 with Fund One. We've been now around for a decade. We're one of the only established firms in C focused on Canada. There's us and a handful of others. There's obviously a lot of pre-seed and seed firms as there should be, but many of them are kind of on funds one and two just started. And some of them will do well and maybe they'll stay there or maybe they'll move up the stack. Some of them won't do well and they'll kind of go away. And that's just part of part of the life cycle of VC, but we've chosen that what we like is zero to one. And that's where we're going to play. That's what we have played the last 10 years. That's what we will play the next 10 years uh, because that's what, that's, what's interesting to us. And uh, yeah, it was started by code and Bernie. I mean, code had been a VC in, in the U S for a while. Bernie had been a VC in Boston while in the U S for a while. And Bernie had come back for other reasons. Code actually funny enough. Like he, he joined a portfolio company as chief operating officer. They exited. He's a sailor and he went sailing with his family. And then all of a sudden, the, uh, the, the new CEO, the then new CEO of Invest Ottawa, kind of as he took over the, the regional innovation center, saw that there was just very little capital in Ottawa. And frankly, in 2012, arguably across the nation, but he was focused on, on this geography. And he went looking for expats that he could bring back to, to start something here and landed on code. So code gets this call, like, do you want to move to Ottawa to start a, a firm? For whatever reason, he decides to explore it, decides to walk through that door. And you know, a few months later, I mean, he meets Bernie through that. And, and still a few months later, they they start Mistral. Uh, and since then, I mean, Canadian VC has been on a, on a tear. So I think the timing couldn't have been better, even if we planned it. But uh, that's really what we like, you know, what are we here to do? I mean, we want to, we, we, we want to create as many startups that matter by by doing exactly what I what I alluded to earlier, which is like allocating as much capital to where it's going to drive the most innovation and then therefore the best returns for RLPs. But in so doing, like we're moving the needle on innovation in Canada. So we don't, I mean, we don't build companies, right? We we build funds, and uh, and that's what that's what gets us out of bed. When you're looking at allocating capital. For maybe you specifically, you talked about your five investments there. How do you kind of source those investments when you look at an investment? Are you looking at, you know, how big is this market going to be? Are you looking at just purely at the founder? Is it a mix of things? Like, what's your kind of investment style? And, you know, making five investments um, seems very like specific. And I'm sure you've seen hundreds and hundreds of companies. So, how do you get that? So, the down funnel is quite, quite wild. Like, if we look at last year, I think we saw it was like 1,500 companies seen, which it could be a deck or an email, right? Like, which led to like maybe a third as many, let's say a few hundred at least pitch meetings, which led to across our whole firm, 
seven investments. So there's a huge drop off, right? And the reality is this, like out of 1500, there's probably a thousand that just clearly are not a fit, whether it's stage or whether it's quality or whatever it is, it's just not a fit. Once you start dwindling down, like if you look at the, the look at the entire funnel and you look, okay, seven were completed. How many were like in super deep due diligence before that? Maybe it was like 14. What separated those 14 or maybe those 20 from the seven you did? Very little. And, and there's going to be some mistakes in there. That's just a fact. But at the end of the day, the stars need to align because we, we're, we're at a certain pace and we've chosen that that's about six or seven per year. And there's a big quantity of startups out there. And so no matter what we do, we have to say no to most of them. And at some point, we have to say no to some. And sometimes we have a really good reason and many times kind of don't. We just, none of us really are feeling it. And so we just don't do it, right? And, we, and in that case, we're just not the right partner for that company. Um, for, for me specifically, and for us, I think broadly, like I really do go back to the mission, right? So question one is, do I think I have in front of me one of the best founders in Canada? Like, can I, can I be genuine in making that argument to myself? Uh, which, you know, there's a bunch of ways to dissect that half of it. The easiest stuff is like super founders, right? Like founders that have been there, done that, already had a, a meaningful acquisition or built a meaningful business. Maybe the second order of that is repeat founders who, you know, didn't have success last time, but clearly know what's going on, domain experts, all the way to like first-time founders, which are the hardest to to analyze. Obviously have been successful for some really big outcomes, like biggest names out there. Uh, uh, come from first-time founders, like everybody will bring up, like Facebook or uh, Microsoft, Google, whatever. Uh, they're the hardest to analyze, right? Like there's the most of them, they're the biggest quantity. And uh, and it, most of them will fail, like like I did a gym track sort of thing. That's just the statistics of it. But we look for qualities, right? Like perseverance, like grit. Like the other thing that's really, that's really important, especially with, well, just in general with any founder is, the depth of understanding of the customers that they have, which is hard to come at because obviously everybody's going to do enough research to, to tell a good story. But like how much time have you really spent talking with customers consistently, maybe building stuff for them that didn't work, maybe just being in that industry or maybe just doing traditional customer discovery work? And do you have a real appreciation for what the day-to-day -day is and the nuances is of your customers? And I found that's been, you know, I haven't run analysis on it, but I found, found like that seems to be a good predictor of whether the thing they're building is going to get product market fit down the road. That's one half of it is the founder side. The other side is like startups that matter. And I think there are this, there's really three things. We look at uh, utility, like value proposition, like how much ROI is really driving for your customers. Um, we don't look at hype. We don't look at trends. Because timing is another really important thing. I mean, you can have the right solution at the wrong time, as everybody knows, and that just goes nowhere. And for timing, timing is really hard to, to tell. Obviously, if it's too late, it's easier because you just see a lot of noise, a lot of competition. But if it's too early, you know, how do you know it's right time or too early? And it's hard to tell. I think one way to tell that is, are you driving real ROI for existing customers? Right? Because if existing customers are actually paying and getting real ROI from it, um, that's, that's a signal that that the time is right, that actually the market is ready to adopt your solution. And then what kind of ROI? Is it just like time-saving? Is it actually revenue-generating? Is it, is it unlock something for your customer and let them scale faster? Things like that. Um, so those are the kind of different points that, that we touch on. We don't get you know, purposefully 
don't get too too detailed. Our memos are really short, like two, three pages, because I think there's something to be said about right sizing for the amount of signal there really is at pre-seed and seed. And like there's not that much signal. There's not that much depth you can really get into. Like, you know, writing 10 more pages is going to lead to better decisions. I mean, it, it will at late stage, like when there's all this stuff to analyze. But at seed stage, you know, there's just a lot of unknowns. And uh, and I think you have to deal with that and kind of right size your processes for that. With gym track, like you you've had a focus on fitness. So how do you keep that fitness up as an investor? Are you like learning from a mentor? Is it just, you know, reps getting those in? Is it meeting lots of founders? Are you like consuming content, like coming up with your own thesis? Like, I guess when you look at like a concept like fitness or just getting better at your craft, what are some things that have worked for you? VC is a weird sport because I my kind of analogy is like being a seed VC is like taking half court shots with your eyes closed and not finding out how many went in for 10 years, right? Like that's really what it is. And, and just the feedback is so long that by the time you know if you're making the right calls, way too late. And that's just the reality of the business. So definitely mentors is a huge piece. And and generally like content and reading have to be a big piece to it as well because you, you have to learn from others. By the time you've learned from yourself, it's, it's actually just been such a long time. Um, and then trying to be really deep on mistakes, you know, one thing that we do, I think one cup, one thing that like, one thing that we do and started start to do more is like, okay, when we make a bad investment, let's go through the memo, let's go through every part of, you know, every update we've ever written by the company and try to understand like what happened and why. But maybe more important, when we passed on a company that ended up being big. Let's go back to our notes and let's go back and look at like why we passed on it and whether maybe we missed something and try to learn from from that side of it. Because of course, we invest a million dollars in a company that doesn't work, we lose a million dollars. We don't invest a million dollars in a company that works, we might lose 10, 50 could have been made. Like the opportunity cost is just way bigger given the, the asymmetric uh, profiles of these investments. So that's that's part of it. But it's it's a tough, it really is a tough game in that regard. It's not like many other things where you just, it, like if the feedback loop is tighter, it's just way easier to get, it's way easier to know how to get good at a craft. Just keep, you know, rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat, and you can see the progress, like working it. Uh, VC's just, it's just not like that. Once you've made an investment, um, where do you see like your biggest value at? Like you're an ex-founder, is that like the biggest value add you have? Have you noticed that like there's a certain space that you're like the best at with helping? Is there just kind of general like knowledge? Like a lot of VCs will say the whole player coach mentality. Like how do you look at uh, that kind of post investment and like that relationship over the next few so years? I'll say two things. Like the first thing is uh, like repeating what I said, like I think, and this is one of my pet, I was just talking to another VC about this, but I think one of my biggest pet peeves about VCs is that oftentimes VCs forget like they're not company builders. I mean, that's why we choose to be VCs. If you want to build companies, you should do it. If you think you're great at building companies, you should build one because you'll make way more money building one that goes really well than running firms. Uh, we build funds. That's what we do. We're capital geared. We're not company builders. That's the profession we've chosen. So this whole concept of value add, while it's real, and I, yeah, I'll tell you in a second how I think I and we add value to our companies, 
is way overhyped. It's way overhyped. Like the reality is 99.9% of the work and the reason for success of a given company is the founder and the team. I mean, the founders spend like 70 hours a week on this. Like the rest of the team spends at least 40, if not 50. And like, I'm going to spend two hours, five hours a week on them, but I'm going to change the trajectory of the company. No, I won't. Like I probably won't. I mean, maybe I'll save them from some mistakes. Certainly I'll make intros for them. I'll facilitate stuff. It's not like I'm sitting and not doing anything. But like, I would be, I would be lying if I, if I were to kind of position myself as, yeah, I'm a game changer for, for companies. I think just about anybody that does that is like, you know, especially at seed or pre-seed. I mean, you, you know, later stage firms will have like operational teams and like they'll add a bunch of value, but it's glorified consulting, right? Like or arguably, you know, you're taking your fees and you're hiring a bunch of AI experts or whatever it is, go to market experts and they're coming in and doing stuff for your company. Like you, you could just take the money from the investment and then hire Deloitte or hire whatever consultancy X to do the same thing. So that's what that is. But anyways, going back to this, you know, the, that's like one side. So like, honestly, what I'm talking about is like the 1% of the value that a VC can add. Like, how do we add that 1%? And I think it comes down to this kind of crossing between breadth and depth. So at the end of the day, the founder I'm talking to knows the most about their solution, their vertical, their customers. I'll never know as much. Let's say it's a construction SaaS. Like I'll just never know as much about construction as this person will. What I bring to the table is breadth. Like they also know very little about the nature of product market fit relative to what I, because what all they have is the stuff they've read online plus the stuff they see at their own company and maybe a few friends they've spoken with. What we have is every day, right? It's not just obviously the stuff I've read online, but it's like all the companies I'm working with, all the companies my partners have worked with and just seeing I mean, I've got KPIs of a bunch of like, you know, go find KPIs, real KPIs, like seed stage companies month by month. It's like stuff's private for a reason, right? Like we have it across 40 different companies. And so we can go back and see when it was working, what wasn't working, plus all the qualitative stuff around that to make sense of it. And because of that, we start seeing patterns and I think have more of an appreciation of, of what feels like the right sort of motions that are going to lead to product market fit and what feels like the sort of thing that just isn't going to get you there and doesn't really matter. And when you're, when you're in the game and the only thing you're thinking about is your product and your customers and your vertical, uh, you, and so you don't necessarily have that. So that back and forth, I think, can lead to more uh, success than the founder you know, going at it alone. But again, we're talking about 1%, 5% of the, the total kind of outcome or, or like, reasons for outcome one to five percent comes from this value add piece and 95 percent plus come down what is your latest publicly announced investment that you're most excited about or just you know excited about for a certain well, reason uh, the firm's latest i think is auto host and my and, and i'll talk about mine just because i can talk to it uh better just i'm closer to it is cooking and that one uh, was just announced a month ago or so. We were part of the, we let their pre-seed round and then we were part of their seed round. And this is a uh, marketplace for home-cooked food. So they're, they're live in Toronto. They have a few competitors, like two competitors in the US. And really what it is, is allowing people to cook from their own home and then on demand, sell it to, end users just like so the end the end user experience is kind of just like uber eats 
Uber Eats, DoorDash, and so on are actually providing the delivery services underneath. But the change is that instead of coming from restaurants, it's coming from chefs who cook from home, which has a bunch of interesting implications. And to be clear, it's not a new idea, but I think that the team was definitely right. And I, and I believe the timing is now right for, uh, for this for two reasons. One is regulatory changes that are happening. And two is um, the how ubiquitous like all these delivery systems have become and how common it's become to just order from from an app, like order food on demand, which really changed during the pandemic, really I mean, grew, I would say. Um, and that one, I mean, that one just has a huge potential. Obviously, if it takes off, food is just a really big category. On-demand food is a really big category. I mean, you have many big multi-billion dollar companies in this space when it comes to from restaurants. Uh, no reason why you shouldn't when it comes to from cooks individually from their home, as long as things kind of trend, you know, the way that we expect them to. And I guess what's like the main value unlock there? Like, is it a cheaper price for the customer? Cause you kind of remo remove some of the, you know, not middlemen, but like the restaurant like has to make money a certain way. And is it just more money to that like chef versus if, if it was a ghost kitchen or the some value, other model like that? And it took me a while to get it fully, but the value is better food for similar prices. What happens is an average line cook will make like 100 meals in a day. The average cook on cooking makes 30. And so you have three times as much energy and attention on each plate. That's one. Two is it's the difference between a manufactured item and a crafts, like a, a craftsmanship, right? Like at the end of the day, one thing is going through an assembly line and the other thing, and the person on that assembly line couldn't care less about this next thing because it's the same as the last one and the, and the one before that versus something done with real craftsmanship where the producer is the full owner of the entire thing and obviously puts a different, feels a different sense of pride into that dish. And this stuff sounds wishy-washy, but it's real. And I think, you would buy into it for most goods, like the difference between art you buy at Ikea and art you get from an artist, obviously. Uh, and But something similar actually applies to food. So that's the first thing. But the price does need to be higher because all of a sudden, all of the costs that come into running a restaurant are gone. And the only thing you have to do is cook food, which is the unlock from the chef side, which is if I want to have, if I just want to cook, that's all I care about. I have to go work for someone which deprives me of my ownership. I don't necessarily have, unless I'm an all-star cook, you know, kind of full control over everything. Uh, and if I want to have full control over everything, I've got to start my own restaurant, which is running a business, which I might not be good at or I might not care about. Like, it's not an interest of mine. A lot of people fall into that. Bucket. Those people now get to say, okay, I'm going to do it from home. I'm just going to cook. I'm going to do exactly what I want to cook, exactly how I want it, when I want it. It's flexible, all this, all this good stuff. Um, and I keep more for myself. And the end, the end unit is better, similar prices. I don't I say it's cheaper and it's not going to be like McDonald's pricing or things like that. But for whatever you would normally pay on Uber Eats, you can now pay the same and just get something that's high quality. In regards to just cooking, because I know based in Canada and, you know, the, the market has really changed over the last year. There's a lot of, you know, chaos or valuation crunch, layoffs. I guess what's your view? I know you're investing in a much earlier stage, so maybe the impact's been less. 
But what what is your view on like the Canadian market right now from a VC perspective? Well, there's no stage? doubt that like just in general, you know, tech stocks are, are down, uh, multiples are down, the amount of dollars invested are down in Canada and in the U.S. And uh, but but having said that, there's still a lot of money in the system. No one's doubting technology the technology asset class like they were in the dot com days. Uh, and in the financial system, as much as all the uh, SVB hype would lead you to believe is not about the crash like it was in 2008. You do have real problems. Like inflation is an absolutely real problem and, and it might have ugly solutions. Um, but I, I continue to believe, rightly or wrongly, that companies that are growing with big potential outcomes and doing it in efficient ways, I don't think you know selling a dollar for 50 cents is going to work anymore. You know, it's going to backstop that. But if you're growing well uh, in a way that that's going to make sense from a unit economics perspective and you have a big outcome, getting funded is not going to be the thing that stops you. I, I really don't think so. You won't get you know the same insane valuations you would before, but that was never really the game. Like The game is to create startups that matter at a big enough scale that they can actually matter. Uh, so that, that really hasn't changed. I love that. And before we jump in the quick fire round, I definitely want to talk about your podcast quickly. And why did you start that? What's the focus and how are you enjoying being a podcast? Yeah, I appreciate you asking about that. We were just talking earlier about about your podcast and your thinking around it. I mean, my thinking is, you know, again, looking at the landscape, there's a lot of content out there. There's a lot of entrepreneurship content out there. What what we felt was lacking when it comes to uh, startup content is something that's a lot more specific and detailed, right? So if you're a startup founder, pre-product market fit, you're dealing with something like maybe you just had an idea. Maybe you're trying to get through customer discovery. Maybe you're trying to crack that first sale or raise that first round, or you're going through a pivot. Some, some's happening. And, and because zero to one is more art than science, it's hard to build like a playbook, a rigorous playbook around it. So we thought, well, why don't we take post product market fit founders, late stage founders, obviously with a focus on Canada because it makes sense for us and dive deep on one of those pieces, right? Because every founder has gone through some of those pieces, some of those milestones from zero to one. And some stories will be a little bit vanilla, but they'll all have a handful of really interesting, really insightful stories about one of those points. So let's figure out what that is and let's dive really deep. So like we did episodes like how to pivot with Rob from from Noibu. They're now doing like five, six million ARR, but to get there, they struggled for three years on a product that you know went to like 3K MRR. And so the story of not the whole story of Nova, but just when they decided that it maybe was time to pivot, how they went through the pivot, all the little steps they did up until the pivot showed signs of success. That's an episode, right? And there's like three of those from Ada. Mike from Ada has an episode, how, how to pivot. Then there's like how to launch act, how to launch a marketplace, how to launch an SMB product, et cetera, et cetera. That's the idea. It's like you're a founder, you're early stage. You want content that's actually detailed enough that you can copy things uh, from people that have been there before. That's where uh, the product market fit show comes in. Love that. And we'll link the show in the, in the show notes so everyone can check that out easily. Uh, let's jump into the quick fire round and uh, would love to know what your favorite book is, one you're currently reading, and if you're not a book person, just any other content. That so my you favorite book of all time is Man's Search for Meaning. Great one. Do you want me to expand on it? Uh, so it's written yeah, by sure. Victor, Victor Frankel and um, it's a book I really think everybody should read. Talks about, you know, I think the average response would be that 
the goal of life is to like maximize happiness, right? But but he he'll tell you it's it's incredible. Like the first half is he went through the uh, Holocaust and he was in a concentration camp. He he survived obviously. So the first half is just that, and and really the outcome of that is the second half, which is his theory on life, really on philosophy of life, which is that um, really we're all just after uh, after meaning, and you can get meaning through relationships. You can get meaning through work or ironically enough, you can get meaning through suffering itself if you have nothing else. Uh, it's quite incredible and, and, and just, I mean, it changed my perspective on, you know, on really like on, on life itself. Right? I mean, like, why do people join the army? It's certainly not, you know, for happiness as an example, right? So there's, there's things like that that he points out that really change your thinking and, and just the impact is huge. What are you most excited about in 2023, personal and professional? Well, personally, just got uh, just got married, <laughs> moved into a new house, so that stuff's really exciting. Congrats! And uh, and professionally, I mean, we're 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 raising fund four right now, um, and uh, obviously that's that's always fun and exciting for us. You know, VCs have to have to raise money too. I go from taking a pitch meeting to giving a pitch meeting, <laughs> and uh, but it's fun. It's a lot of fun. Um, how do you deal with hard times? You're a founder, you're an investor. Is you have anything specific I that think works for you? That one thing I found lately that's really important in good and bad times is perspective. And just understanding that, you know, Warren Buffett's thing is like we everybody that's listening to this won the Oberian lottery because probably you're in like US or Canada. And like just by virtue of that, you're already in the top like one percent of the world, right? Um but that kind of an idea, like and literally, I, so I meditate every day. And part of that is uh, effectively, and I'm not religious, right? But saying grace, like, what are you grateful for, right? And this thing called the, the grateful flow, which is just name five things that you're grateful for. Um, and, you know, try to change them every day. Don't try to make them same. Like try to think about it a little bit. And the idea of that is just like continuously realizing just how, just how privileged you are in general. And I think when you're going through a hard time, that can help. I mean, I've read audiobooks of people that, have truly been through hell and back. I mean, they were born in the worst neighborhoods ever, gangs, murders, went to jail when they were like 15 for life and like, you know, changed their life. And when you hear a story like that, it totally changes your perspective on everything, but it only lasts a few days. So you need to constantly remind yourself of that uh, for it to actually help you when times get hard, right? Because I think times get hard and you look at it from your perspective and you think it's the absolute worst thing ever. Um, but by gaining some perspective, you, you just realize the context of it. And oftentimes, it's just not as bad as you think. I think that's a great focus on perspective. Um, I'd love to open up the floor to you. How can people get in, in touch with you or just learn more about Mistral? Yes, yeah, so, I mean, we yourself? have a website, mistral.vc, and uh, a bunch of information about us and the investments we've done on there. And of course, the, the podcast, pmf.show. You can you can check it out on on that domain or on any podcast player, the Product Market Fit Show, and uh, yeah, listen to some amazing Canadian founders share uh, really detailed stories about their early days. Awesome, Pablo! It's been a Thanks lot of fun. Thanks for coming awesome. on. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to subscribe share with friends, and reach out with guest suggestions. Make sure to follow me on Twitter, LinkedIn, and subscribe to our newsletter on Substack to keep up to date.